Hello and welcome to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. My name is Nick Zararis. Wasn't able to put together that Minnesota Wild episode and I wanted to give it a day or so to kind of stew over things that happened during the NHL trade deadline on Sunday night, late Sunday night when the Taylor Hall trade happened and what took place on Monday because this is the time of year where everybody has to stick their flag in the ground to let the world know their opinion on the trades, whether the team that made the move actually got better or not, that kind of thing, which will dominate the airwaves and space and online publications for the next couple days, as we still, in the hockey community, have the never-ending debate of the eye test versus the analytics, Obviously, those things are correlated. There's a very clear track record of correlation between the two. If a player is giving up a lot of scoring chances and not making a lot of scoring chances, they probably look pretty bad under the eye test, which is why I don't understand the whole eye test only people, because the analytics will validate your opinion. You can look at zone entries going to that. You can look at dangerous passes attempted. You can look at so many different metrics to get an understanding of how well a player is or isn't playing. And I'm a strong proponent of all of these underlying advanced statistics because they give you a little bit of color that doesn't show up in the score sheet. Just because someone scores a goal doesn't mean they played well. You can score a goal stupidly. Last week, when the Rangers were playing the Penguins and they come down on a 2-on-1 and Colin Blackwell passes a puck through the middle of the ice, but it ricochets off of a penguin's leg and through the goalie. That 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 was a good play? Eh, that was luck. Uh, it, not to discredit Blackwell, I mean, good things happen when you have the puck in dangerous areas, which is one of the underlying principles of some of the more important underlying statistics, like high-danger scoring chances, which are scoring chances that come from below the dots, on a diagonal to the posts and within that trapezoid-like space. Those are high-danger chances, and expected goals accounts for that as well, where based on historical data, those shots have an assigned value to them between 0 and 1. The higher the decimal point, the more likely said scoring attempt is to result in a goal. A lot of the time, you'll see teams finish a game with 2-point-something expected goals and score 4 goals, That would be exceeding expectations. The inverse is also true, where a team could only have one goal, but they're expected to score 2.8 or 2.9 even. It happens. I like using them as a means of understanding what's going on. So I went and did a little looking. I went and tried to get my best available understanding of why teams made the moves they did. I listened to a few other podcasts. I've read a numerous amount of columns to get a better understanding from a financial standpoint, not just a roster construction standpoint because some of these moves were made with the mindset of protecting the team in the expansion draft coming up or acquiring an asset that's on a cost-controlled measure because they have a contract for a number of years into the future at a set price as opposed to being a restricted or soon-to-be-restricted free agent where there could be some haggling and and this flat salary cap environment where teams are going to be only having $81.5 million of cap space up until at least 2023 at the earliest is the time the NHL assumes it can increase its salary cap. Teams need to know what guys are going to be paid so they can plan around the rest of their roster. Before I get to the main part of today's show, I do have to remind everyone to help out any way you can. For most people, 
that's going to be hitting the follow button if you are on Apple, if you are on Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Audio Boom, any podcasting platform aside from iTunes. If you're using Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I use them interchangeably, even though iTunes doesn't exist anymore, which is kind of weird. But if you're using Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button. And if you have the time, go to our show's page, scroll all the way down. There's going to be five clear stars at that bottom. Hit the one furthest to the right. That's leaving a five-star review. And beneath that is a button that says write a review. If you're so inclined and you have an extra minute, please leave a review. That stuff means the world to me as a content creator. I love getting feedback from the audience, whether it's something I've written, whether it's the podcast, whether it's a video I've made. I like getting feedback from the public. Speaking of the blog, Gotham Sports Network, if you're not following already, you really, really should be. Going to have something up tomorrow about why the beat writers are just kind of lying about Lieber Hayek's play and... I assume it's the organization telling them that and them just typing what the organization tells them. Because as my findings in my column are going to show, he has not gotten better. No, no matter how many times the team, people on the MSG Network broadcast, on the pregame show, the intermission report, whether it's Sam and Joe in the booth, whether it's Rick Carpinello in The Athletic, Larry Brooks in The New York Post, whether it's Vince Mercagliano in Lohud. Any of those people tells you Hayek is playing better. He is not. We have a statistical record we can point at. He's still giving up the same number of chances. He's still on the ice for more chances against than he is chances the Rangers are creating. He is still conceding more dangerous scoring chances than the team is creating when he's on the ice. And he's doing it against bad competition. It's not like the Rangers are asking him to do a whole heck of a lot. They're asking him to play 12, 13 minutes at 5-on-5 and not totally implode, which he hasn't been able to do this year. And it's disappointing, because he's 65 games into his NHL career at this point, and you would think, to some degree, he'd either have sunk, and the Rangers would have sent him back down to the AHL, or he would have stuck. And instead, the Rangers are continuing to let him struggle, and is costing the team. No matter how much the organization says they're trying to make the playoffs this year, they're not, because they're giving Lieber Hayek 20% of the ice time at 5-on-5 five five as a defenseman. You can't be doing that. You can't be giving 20% of your 5-on-5 five five ice time to a guy who's on the ice for only 40% of scoring chances for your team. If the other team has 60% of the scoring chances, no shit they're going to outscore you all the time. Okay, enough from the soapbox. I do want you to read my column. I'll see you guys in one second. A one. Here's Olofsson in front. They score. The inflection in front of the net is tapped home. And Buffalo has tied it up on the power play. And Taylor Hall is going to get his first goal as a saber here, as you say, on the power play. And with that, I'm going to jump on into it. Biggest, flashiest move of the trade deadline was the Boston Bruins acquiring Taylor Hall, Curtis Lazar from the Buffalo Sabres for Anders Bjork and a second round pick. Starting from the Buffalo perspective, obviously an underwhelming return. Taylor Hall fetched a first round pick and prospects last year for the New Jersey Devils when the Coyotes acquired him, not even at the deadline in mid-December of 2019 when they made the move. Obviously, Taylor Hall had a really tough go of it in Buffalo. That entire team has struggled this year. Hall has the most 
breakaways of any forward in the league over the last two years, and he scored on, I believe, one of them. And this is a player who's known for his dynamic speed, his decent finishing, and a lot of the, some of the underlying numbers you're going to see, like his goals above replacement or wins above replacement, look pretty ugly, but a lot of that is based on finishing, and if your team is not scoring goals at 5-on-5, it's really hard for those stats to account for that, and Make no mistake, Hall was pretty rough in Buffalo. He wasn't creating a ton. He wasn't able to use his speed to create chances. He didn't really get to play a whole ton with a whole ton before Jack Eich- with Jack Eichel before Eichel suffered that injury. Eichel and the Sabers announced on Wednesday during the day that the he Eichel was going to be having surgery on a herniated disc in his neck, which is troubling because Eichel's still a relatively young guy. He's only 24 years old, but neck injuries are serious. Herniated discs are serious. You're dealing with joints. Uh, uh, you're dealing with um, vertebrae being compressed on each other, that kind of thing. It, it's It's complicated. Neck injuries are one of those things where someone even as young as Eichel might never be the same because of it. So it's something... The Sabres are going to have to be extremely careful with, and it very well might dampen any potential trade market this summer for the forwards, because teams are going to want to take on that risk of trading for a guy coming off of a neck surgery. They might want to see how he plays this upcoming season for 2021-2022 before sinking into that. But the Sabres probably could have gotten more on the open market. It is worth noting that more than one NHL insider has reported this was a situation where Taylor Hall used his no-movement clause to pick a desired landing spot, and that ended up being the Bruins in this case. There are reports out there that the Vegas Golden Knights were also in on Taylor Hall, that the New York Islanders were in on Taylor Hall, the Florida Panthers were in on Taylor Hall, but eventually Hall settled on the Bruins. It's an interesting move for the Bruins. I wrote maybe 10 minutes after the trade broke, I tweeted, I don't really understand this move for the Bruins. This is your worst team in a few years. You're going to have to beat two of the Islanders, Capitals, and Penguins just to get to the conference finals. And then when you get to the conference finals after two brutal series, you get a date with Colorado, Tampa, Toronto, Vegas, Carolina, Tampa Bay. Any of those teams is going to be more talented than you. And This Bruins team is effectively playing with one forward line. They broke up the perfection line of Marshawn, Pasternak, and Bergeron because the second line and third line weren't scoring, so they moved Pasternak away from the first line to try and get the second line going with David Krejci, and they've still got nothing going there. So acquiring Taylor Hall is a gamble. I I understand why the Bruins did it. They felt like the East was winnable this year. They feel like they can get to that conference final if they get a little bit of puck luck and if Tuka Rask returns to form. They have been dealing with some injuries up and down that lineup. They've had a really tough time keeping their defensemen healthy. Charlie McAvoy's been out of the lineup a few times. They've been reliant on guys with not a ton of NHL experience at 5-on-5 five five to play heavy minutes. I've always liked Matt Grizzlick, but he's been hurt most of the year. Brandon Carlo suffered that injury from the Tom Wilson hit. He came back from that concussion, immediately got hurt that first game back. Zaboral has been okay. He hasn't been great. I know a lot of Bruins writers are insisting they probably should have kept Zidane Chara. I respectfully disagree. When you look at Chara's impacts on McAvoy, he made McAvoy's life harder because he did not cover as much ground. He was slow. 
he made McAvoy's life more difficult. So I I understand why people feel like Shar would help the Bruins right now, considering the issues they're having on the back end. But at the same time, I also don't think Zdeno Chara at 42, 43 years old is going to be that much of a difference between being the third best team in this Eastern Division and the fourth best team in the Eastern Division. Taylor Hall has upside. The Bruins feel confident they can fix him and turn him into not what he was with the Devils when he won the Hart Trophy. That was a knee surgery ago. But a decent forward at 5-on-5 with some top six upside. I read in Elliot Friedman's 31 Thoughts column that there was more than one team out there that feels like Taylor Hall can still be a first-line impact player. I don't know if he can be a first-line guy, but he can definitely be a second-line left wing to really help someone out. Ideally, if things work well, you can put Pasternak back on that first line. You can put Taylor Hall on that second line with David Krejci. And if Andre Kashe ever returns from his injury... You could play him on the right wing there. The Bruins are not as good as they've been in years past. Some of that is tied to the defense. Some of that is tied to the goaltending. But they're bottom five in the league in terms of goals for, in terms of just scoring goals. They are fifth. They are third fewest five-on-five goals. And that's, that's just unacceptable for a team that has Stanley Cup aspirations. They need to create more chances. They need to score more. Flat out, they need to score more. So in terms of fit, there's an obvious fit here. Boston's having a hard time scoring goals. Taylor Hall was having a hard time scoring goals in Buffalo. Lacoste was minimal. Anders Bjork never really clicked in Boston, played a lot on the third and fourth line for the Bruins. And a second round pick, if you're a team like Boston, is going to be in the 50s of the second round. So I understand it from Boston's perspective. This move makes sense. Buffalo... Probably could have gotten more on the open market, but when the player is using his no-movement clause to get to a desired landing spot, sometimes you are going to have to accept less than you probably could get, and you just can't let a guy walk for nothing in free agency, so Kevin Adams, the Sabres GM, had to make that move. I, I get it. It's not ideal, but I get it. The next flashy move... I'll call it flashy move in air quotes because it was the Leafs and they paid a premium price for it, but acquiring center Nick Foligno from the Columbus Blue Jackets for a package that included a first and second round draft pick, that seems kind of heavy for a guy who at best is going to play middle six wing minutes. Uh, What makes the Leafs so good is their high-end talent. Uh, Their top six is as good as any in the sport. When you can have an Austin Matthews, a William Nylander, a Mitch Marner, a John Tavares, a Zach Hyman on the ice, pretty much at least 50% of your ice time during the course of a game, that's pretty damn good. And that's not even getting into the secondary pieces that that the Leafs have at their disposal now when you talk about a Jason Spezza, a Joe Thornton, a Wayne Simmons. You add Savard, Savard, I'm getting ahead of my outline, thinking about the Lightning acquiring uh, uh, David Savard, the defenseman. The Leafs acquiring Foligno makes sense in a vacuum. This is a perfect example of the fit versus the need. The Leafs felt like they needed to add some bottom six grit. This is the 2021 Maple Leafs equivalent of the Tampa Bay Lightning trading for Blake Coleman and Barkley Goudreau at the deadline. They feel like adding this guy, Nick Foligno, to their lineup gives them flexibility. He can play some center, he can play some wing, 
He could play on the second line. He could play on the first line. He could play on the third line. And he won't inhibit anyone. He's not the player he was a couple of years ago in Columbus where he had the crazy shooting percentage and scored a ton of goals. But he's defensively responsible. He's not going to have crazy impacts offensively at 5-on-5. Five five. He's not going to generate a ton of zone entries. But if you slap him on that second line, that gives your second line the ability to play a bit more of a grit-and-grind style. I'm not saying the Leafs need to fundamentally alter how they play. It is giving them flexibility, though. This is something that I think is important when you're talking about adding gritty players. And when I said gritty with that inflection of my voice, I was putting air quotes over it. Having guys like that is a luxury. If they can still contribute at what you want to do normally, and occasionally you just want to dump the puck into the zone and tell Felino, all right, go get it, get the puck to either Matthews or Tavares or Nylander or Marner, whoever's on the ice, and we go from there, it's just adding a different way of playing. You can still play your high-end skill style of east-west passing, trying to get that high-low game going to some degree where you want to incorporate your defenseman a little bit, but having flexibility is good. The Leafs did have to give up an extra draft pick to launder the trades through a third team for Columbus to get, excuse me, for Felino to get some of his salary retained so they could make the number fit under their contract. Interestingly enough, I was listening to 31 Thoughts, Elliot Friedman's podcast with Jeff Merrick. They do for Sportsnet once or twice a week, and Friedman mentioned that the Leafs had made some overture towards the Arizona Coyotes for Connor Garland, the forward who's a pending restricted free agent with arbitration rights. Friedman made sure to specify that they were never that close on making a Garland move happen, but he's different from Felino. He's more of that skill skill style that could you would associate with the Leafs. And I'm very curious to see what happens with the Leafs this year come the playoffs. Clearly their general manager, Kyle Dubas, Kyle Dubas felt that he needed a little bit more ruggedness in their bottom six because look at the moves he made. He brought in Joe Thornton. He brought in Wayne Simmons. He brought in now Felino. He's made a conscious effort to include some more grit grind guys who can win 50-50 pucks, play the puck below the goal line, and play a little bit more of that playoff style of hockey. And when I say playoff style of hockey, I mean... I mean, the game moves faster, there's less open space, teams are a little bit more conservative defensively, so it's tougher to gain the offensive zone, so they're more inclined to put three or four people on the blue line and play more conservatively in the neutral zone. It's hard to just carry the puck in if there's four guys standing on the blue line. Uh, you got to dump the puck in in those situations, and you can't turn it over in the neutral zone and let an odd man rush go the other way. You've got to get it in below the goal line, and you got to be able to win those grinded-out games because in the playoffs, there's a lot less space to operate and the game's moving faster. I think Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Tavares at this point, and Zach Hyman, you can throw in with that mix. Those guys know what they're expected of. They, The Leafs feel like they're capable of winning the Stanley Cup this year, and Dubas went out and he paid a pretty price. Uh, granted, a first-round pick for a team that expects to make... At least the second round is going to be in the mid-20s, but first-round picks are valuable. Those are how you make big trades. Those are how you acquire guys who are going to be on your team for a long period of time. So it was really interesting to see the Leafs go in on a player who's kind of a lug... I don't want to say a luxury because you don't think of a grit-grind guy as a luxury player, but someone like Felino, 
He doesn't create a ton of scoring chances on his own. He does not carry the puck into the offensive zone. He gets good puck retrievals. He's responsible defensively. He's decent at shot suppression, which is kind of important. But generally speaking, I don't know if Nick Foligno is really the difference between winning and losing a Stanley Cup. I think your biggest issue is probably your goaltending if you're Toronto. Uh, They acquired David Riddick from the Calgary Flames, who went on a nice run at points last year during the regular season for them. But he'd fallen out of favor. The team gave a pretty big contract to Jacob Markstrom in the the offseason. Markstrom had played for the Canucks last year. And I get it. They're trying to shore up that position. The Leafs have had goaltending turmoil this year. Their main starter, Frederick Anderson, who's been their starter the last several years, has been injured a lot this season. He has not played a ton. They've had to play Michael Hutchinson at points. They've gotten decent play out of Jack Campbell, who they acquired from the Los Angeles Kings last year in runs. He had gone 9-0 and in his first nine starts as the Leafs goalie. He lost his first start last weekend. Riddich's insurance. They need Freddie Anderson back. I do not think the Leafs can go particularly far with a combination of everybody else that isn't Freddie Anderson. I know Anderson is much maligned for his play in the playoffs the last few years because he's been the problem for Toronto. He's given up some softies. They haven't gotten as much offense from their top six as they would like. Their bottom six has left a little bit to be desired, but I get it. The moves the Leafs made are assigned to the coaching staff, the players from the front office and ownership that we feel like you guys are capable of winning a cup this year. Let's go out and add some more stuff to help you accomplish that goal. A reasonable, reasonable outlook. They also acquired Riley Nash forward. He'll play fourth line if he gets in for the Leafs starting the playoffs. He's a low upside guy. He creates pretty much no offense. He's responsible defensively. Not a ton in terms of the underlying metrics. He gives up a lot of scoring chances. Not a ton of dangerous ones, but when he's on the ice, the other team typically has the puck, which is less than ideal when you're a team like the Leafs. Moving on. The move that, from an analytics perspective, isn't beautiful, but I really like. I can't believe... I like David Savard, too. Tampa Bay for a few reasons. Number one, Tampa Bay lost a lot of five-on-five minutes in the offseason. Kevin Shattenkirk, who played pretty well for them in the playoffs last year, he's an Anaheim Duck. Zach Bogosian left. They never replaced those bottoms, those two defensemen, those two right-shot defensemen from this past season Stanley Cup win. That's a lot of minutes at at five-on-five to replace. Whether or not you put Savard on your penalty kill is a matter of personal preference, but That helps Tampa Bay out considerably because now for most of your five-on-five ice time, you're going to be able to have at least one of, if not multiple, of McDonough, Victor Hedman, Mikhail Sergachev, and Savard on the ice at once. And let's say you Savard and McDonough together and that's your second pair, and then you keep Sergachev with Hedman and Sergachev playing on the offside. That's four really good defensemen. Like, honestly speaking, aside from Colorado, that might be the best one through four defensive group in the entire league. Uh, Vegas' defense, Petrangelo, hasn't been that great this year. Toronto's defense leaves a little bit to be desired. 
there's not a ton of quality defensive cores that go one through six. Colorado's is the obvious exception to that rule. It's really good one through six. I mean, you're talking about when everyone's healthy, you're talking about Bowen Byron, Sam Gerrard, Devontae's, Kale McCarr, even Ryan Graves. There's a lot of defensemen to like on that team, and Tampa Bay's got a good mix of guys. It's not one through six as good as Colorado's, but pretty damn good is what I'll say. They can roll out some effective pairs. And this is a team that hasn't had Nikita Kucherov all year and is still going to be able to drop him into that lineup come the first night of the playoffs. And if any team is capable of repeating, it's this Tampa Bay team. They've got the best goalie in the world right now in Andre Vasilevsky. They've got as good a 1-4 through four defense as any team in the league aside from Colorado. You're going to drop Nikita Kucherov into that top six, and you're still talking about a team that's going to feature Steven Stamkos when he's healthy, Nikita Kucherov once he's healthy, Anthony Sorelli when he's healthy, Braden Point, Andre Palat, Tyler Johnson. They have just... Ross Colton has come on really strong for them this year, kind of out of nowhere, but again... I talk about it all the time. Tampa Bay has one of the best talent development systems in the entire league. They acquire talent from outside the organization. They draft well. They give guys opportunities to make an impact. And they get them better. They put those guys in the AHL. They put them on the Syracuse Crunch. They get better at hockey. Tampa Bay has done a masterful job this decade of graduating players from the AHL to the NHL. And then once they get to the NHL, putting them in a position to succeed. Think about what Tampa Bay has done with Anthony Sorelli. Think about what they've done with Braden Point. Those are two guys who play high-end levels for them now, who are responsible two ways, more so for Sorelli, but Point scores and creates so many chances at 5-on-5. It's fine if he's bad against for defensive reasons because he's small. That's fine. Adding Savard to that group only fills a hole they add, you know, they paid a premium price as well. They gave up a first-round pick for a defenseman who pretty much contributes nothing offensively and does get dramatically outchanced at 5-on-5. Five five. I was pretty shocked to see that, that Savard's on the ice for about 55% of scoring chances against, meaning when he's on the ice, the other team has 55% of the scoring opportunities at 5-on-5. Five five. That's not great for someone you're paying a premium asset price for. Uh I think Savard has some upside defensively. He's not going to concede a ton of dangerous chances, which is important. And I do think playing on a team like Tampa Bay that's actually good, as opposed to a team like Columbus, which has been struggling all year, will help him be a little bit more responsible. And he'll play with a better defensive partner, which does matter, to be quite honest. Because when you're being asked to do a lot of the heavy lifting on a defensive pair, it can make your life difficult. I mean, it doesn't take, it's not very far back in the recesses of my memory. The Rangers forcing Jacob Truber to play with Lieber Hayek last year for about 30 games, and them just getting caved in at 5-on-5. Five five. Like, the other team would get 60% of the scoring chances against when they were on the ice because they Hayek was just so bad at staying control of the puck and getting it out of the defensive zone, and Truber was just trying to play defense for two people at once, basically, and it just didn't work. Uh, it just flat out did not work. I don't think that'll be the case in Tampa Bay for Savard. I do think having Vasilevsky behind him will help as well. 
I think that probably is the biggest factor and why I think a lot of people like Tampa Bay to make a run this year again is Vasilevsky is playing even better than he did last year. Uh, I know a lot of people got caught up in the whole Blake Coleman, Barkley, Goudreau thing at the trade deadline last year as a reason why Tampa Bay finally broke through. Tampa Bay broke through because their top six played amazing. Braden Point was awesome. Nikita Kucherov was awesome. And Vasilevsky stole the show. You cannot advance in the postseason if your goalie is not playing at least good. Average or below average goaltenders do not win rounds in the playoffs because the sample is so small. You got four losses and you got to pack your shit and you're out. You do not have time for your goalie to figure things out in the playoffs. It's one of the reasons you'll see if a team gets shelled in a game one and a game two, that first home game, if there's a road team, they're going to go to the backup goalie or the 1B goalie because they got to stop the momentum and they got to give themselves a chance to win a game. Vasilevsky just doesn't have nights like that, really, where he looks lost and he gives up a bunch of softies. I mean, it happens because goaltending is such a volatile position. It's arguably the most volatile position in all of sports from year to year. It's right up there with closers in baseball in terms of effectiveness. Guys can be good one year and bad the next year. It's why when you see players who, when you see goaltenders who have goals saved above expected several years in a row, that's a delineation of a clearly good goaltender. As someone like a Henrik Lundqvist, someone like a Roberto Luongo when he was in Vancouver, someone like Marc-Andre Fleury was for a few years there in Pittsburgh during his peak years. There are goalies who are good for one or two years all the time. Uh, it remains to be seen if Jordan Bennington is actually good. He got hot for one cup run, and he's been very inconsistent in the two years since. Arizona has had some decent goaltending here and there from Darcy Kemper and Antti Ranta, but no team is banking on one of those guys to win them a series. Uh, even the Rangers, uh, I don't have an insane amount of confidence in Igor Shosturkin if you were to drop him into a playoff series. I think Shosturkin is pretty good, but goaltending is such a mental thing where all it takes is one shitty goal and you're in your head the rest of the damn night. And any time after you give up a softie, you're fighting the puck off, which is never good. When you're fighting the puck off, you're tense. You're not as mindful of your angles. You're more liable to give up big rebounds and secondary scoring chances. All of the things you don't want from your goaltender in a pressure cooker situation in the postseason. The last move that I want to talk about, there were others. Sam Bennett, Jordy Ben, stuff that didn't really move the needle for me. I didn't think was particularly important, but the one other move of note, it happened last week, well before the trade deadline. It happened when the Rangers were playing the Islanders. Was the Kyle Palmieri and Travis Ajak to the Islanders trade from the Devils. Just draft picks. Uh, I like the move for the Islanders. I'll be honest, Palmieri's had a pretty rough go of things. He's not finishing a lot of scoring chances, and that's where his main value comes from is as a goal scorer. He's someone who's in the upper tier of finishers. I, I know a lot of people don't think of Kyle Palmieri as being a truly a good or above average finisher, but historically, if you look at his career, you're talking about a player who's in the upper echelon of goal scorers. He's someone who routinely finishes in the top 25, 30 players, which would grade out as a first-line wing for most teams in terms of that goal scoring, but on a loaded Islanders team, well, I shouldn't say loaded, that's not the right word, on a deep Islanders team, where Palmieri can play pretty much anywhere in that lineup. 
if you put him on the first line with Barzal in the Leo Komarov spot, I think you have a lot of potential to get really good results out of Paul Mary where he won't have to do a bulk of the heavy lifting where Barzell can create the zone entries because he can just carry the puck into the zone himself because he's such a good skater. And you get Paul Mary into those shooting areas, he's going to have an impact. You can put Paul Mary on your power play one, which I know a lot of my Islander fan friends talk about as being one of the real issues for the Islanders going forward is that their power play has always been pretty bad because they just don't have good mechanics for the setup they use. They don't have the right personnel. And Palmieri's got a plus shot. And you have a guy with a plus shot, you got to put him in a good position. He's not going to occupy that one-timer spot that you would see like the Rangers have Zabinijad in or Panarin in, where they're going to be in the circle on their strong side so they can one-time the puck. The Islanders don't do a ton of that. They're more of a 1-3-1 power play where they like to get the puck down low below the goal line and then bump the puck out into the net front area for jam plays. And they like to have point shots that get redirected in because they have defensemen like Nicoletti, like Ryan Pulak, like Noah Dobson, who are pretty good shooters of the puck. So it's easier for forwards down low to redirect them as opposed to the more high-end, if you want to call it that, one-timer setup power plays that you see amongst teams with some more of the high-end offensive talent. And then you get to put Travis Zajac in that top nine, which means you get to take Ross Johnston or Leo Komarov out or drop them further down in the lineup, which I think is one of the bigger issues for the Islanders is they've got played so well this year. I wrote about it last week where they're scoring in the ballpark of 52-53% expected goals on the year meaning that of their scoring chances, historically speaking, based on shot tracking data, 53% of the, the scoring chances they create should result in goals. It's pretty damn good. That That is a really good metric for a team that, shoots le- that has less than 50% of the overall scoring chances. So the Islanders are something like 49 point something percent of scoring chances at 5-on-5. Five five. But because the Islanders are getting to dangerous areas of the ice, their scoring chances have more value and in turn have a higher expected goals for percentage. And that is encouraging because that typically means what they're doing is translatable come postseason time. And the Islanders, like you know, you before when I mentioned adding um, Nick Felino to the Maple Leafs allows them to play a more playoff style of hockey. The Islanders already play a playoff style of hockey. They are more than willing to turn it into a muck it up below the goal lines. All right, high-low, low-high, where the winger who recovers the puck in the corner gets it up to the point, the defenseman skates towards the middle, walks the blue line, rips a shot, gets redirected down low, off the goaltender, rebound, score. The Islanders love, love, love mucking the game up like that down low. And adding Palmieri and adding Zajac only furthers the flexibility of their roster and helps their coach, who's Barry Trotz, who's obviously the best coach in hockey, do more with what he already has. Of all of the deadline moves, I really like Taylor Hall. I, initially, I didn't understand it from Boston's perspective for the reason I said I didn't feel like this Bruins team was particularly close. But from what I'm hearing, what I've read... It seems like the Bruins intend on signing Taylor Hall long-term there for at least a couple of years and trying to maintain a core because they've got Marshawn on a cheap contract and they've got Pasternak on a cheap contract and they've got Bergeron on a relatively cheap contract. So 
They have ideal roster flexibility, so they can get Taylor Hall on a comparable contract to those guys. You got five good forwards, four good forwards right there. You still got McAvoy. You got to figure out goaltending, and you got to give McAvoy some help on the back end. But as a built a foundation, that's a four really, really talented forwards to build around. So I like that move a lot. And like I said, I like Savard to Tampa because they needed to fill up that secondary right-handed defenseman role that Kevin Shattenkirk played so well for them last year. Savard does not have nearly the upside that Shattenkirk did, but Shattenkirk was there for one year on purpose. He wanted to ring chase and he wanted to rehab his reputation after a really bad two years in New York where the Rangers did not put him in a good position to succeed. And he never really had a chance to play well as a Ranger. And I still regret the way the Rangers treated him, where they made him play through the first half of that first year with a torn meniscus, got surgery, he came back, and David Quinn never really put him in a position to succeed, playing bad roles with bad defensive partners and a bad defensive strategy that gave up way too many scoring chances and forced the Rangers to buy him out, which was unfortunate because Shankirk took less money to come to the Rangers to play for his favorite team as a kid. Shankirk grew up as a Ranger fan in New Rochelle, and he wanted to be a Ranger, and they threw him overboard. They never gave him a real chance to succeed, and it was disappointing. He went to Tampa. They won the cup. He rehabbed his reputation. He got a multi-year deal from the Ducks. Good for Kevin Shattenkirk, and that's why I like the Savard deal. They had to fill up the minutes that Shattenkirk and Bogosian played for them last year in the playoffs. Savard can do that competently. He's not a disaster. Before I get everyone out of here, real quick, they did this on Trade Center after the deadline. They gave their top five teams that they think could win the Stanley Cup. Most of the analysts had the same five teams they had going into the season. They A few of them tweaked the order. One or two teams moved around. But right now, in order. I think the Avalanche are clearly the best team thus far in the regular season. Them putting Grubauer, their goaltender, on the COVID list is concerning. They got to make sure he's okay. That's really the only flaw in Colorado's roster is goaltending. As long as Grubauer is healthy, I think Colorado is got to be your betting favorite to win the Stanley Cup. They just have they got too much talent. They've got nine awesome forwards at five on five. They can control the flow of the game. They've got six really good defensemen. I mean, Ryan Graves isn't amazing, but as your sixth best defenseman, Ryan Graves... That's a really good group of defensemen, man. They've gone relatively far in the playoffs now. They have a little bit more experience under their belt. They get that first line of McKinnon, Landeskog, and Rantanen humming come playoff time. There are a few lines in hockey that can compete with that. Colorado, definitely number one. Number two, your Tampa Bay Lightning. This team is really damn good, and they haven't had Nikita Kucherov all year. Like I said, they got the best goalie in the world in Andre Vasilevsky. They shirt up the back end with Savard. They've got a really good top six. You drop Kucherov in there. You get Stamkos playing the wing. Point, Sorelli, Kucherov, Stamkos, Palat. That's a really good group of forwards, man. That is a really good group of forwards. And then you still got the Goudreau and Coleman third line from last year. And you get to drop Ross Colton in there, who's been good for them. They just have so much talent down there. They got Eric Chernak, the defenseman back there, as their fourth, fifth best defenseman. Them, Savard, McDonough, Hedman, Sergachev. There's just so much 
goddamn talent on Tampa Bay. And you know they can do it. They did it last year. They have the scars of all those playoff losses before last year. And they want to run it back. They very well could. Their path to the Final Four is through whoever finishes in fourth in that division. Right now it's looking like it's going to be Nashville. Tampa Bay will be a heavy favorite against Nashville. And then Carolina or Florida, which Tampa Bay will be a favorite against either of those teams as well. I think Carolina could give them a decent fight because Carolina is equally deep where they've got a ton of talent up and down their forward group and their back end. Goaltending, as always, is an issue for Carolina, but Tampa Bay clearly number two for me. Number three, the Vegas Golden Knights. If the Golden Knights were not in Colorado's division, I think I'd have them higher, to be honest. I'd arguably put them ahead of Tampa Bay. I think Vegas is supremely talented. They're top six. When you talk about Chandler Stevenson, Mark Stone, Max Pacioretty, then you go to that second line. You get a second line in there with Wild Bill Carlson, with Jonathan Marsha Show, with Riley Smith. That's a really damn good top six. It's not as good as Tampa's or Colorado's, but it's really good. They've got the luxury of having two plus goaltenders in Marc-Andre Fleury and Robin Lehner. They have been great as of late. They've kind of hit that rough patch in their season, but when Vegas is on point, they can hang with pretty much any team in the league that isn't Colorado. Uh, anything can happen in the playoffs. I'm more inclined to trust Vegas's goaltending than Colorado's if they were to meet up head-to-head in a best-of-seven, which I hope we do get this year. We were robbed of that last year when Dallas, uh, excuse me, when Vancouver beat Vegas and we ended up with the Dallas-Colorado Conference Final. Yeah, we were robbed of the Vegas Golden Knights, who were the best team in hockey last year to me. I think they were probably better than Tampa, but we never got to see it happen. Number four, the Toronto Maple Leafs. I know what you're thinking. Really, Nick, the Leafs? I think their path to the Final Four is the easiest of any of these contenders. You're going to play Montreal in round one. Toronto's more talented than Montreal. And then you get a date with either Winnipeg or Edmonton. Toronto should beat either of those teams. I... If there was ever a year for Toronto to break their glass ceiling and actually make a deep playoff run, the league set up the playoff format for them to be able to make a run this year. That group is talented. It's got the high-end players in the top six. They just need to not be a disaster in the bottom six, and they need the goaltending to show up. That's really all they freaking need, and Toronto could very easily find itself in that final four grouping. Last, but not least, I felt like I had to put an East Division team in here. I'm going with the New York Islanders. Uh, I trust Barry Trotz. Varlamov is a good goalie. He's a piece of shit human being. Domestic violence is bad. It's bad. He's in the league. The Islanders have put him in a position to succeed. It's bullshit he's playing, but the Islanders have good goaltending. They have good 5-on-5 underlying numbers. They create a ton of dangerous scoring chances. Hell, I mean, this is a team that's played well without Anders Lee, and Anders Lee was their leading goal scorer when he got hurt. I Matt Barzell is one of the ten best players in the entire sport. You got Zajac in there, you got Paul Mary in there, you got Anthony Bovillia, you got Brock Nelson. They've got talent. 
they've got good defensemen this year. The Ryan Pulak, Adam Pellick defensive pair has been one of the five best in the entire league all year in terms of expected goals. Islanders, I think, I think the Islanders can beat Pittsburgh in the first round, and then you're looking at a date with either Washington or Boston. I think the Islanders can beat either of those teams. I think the Islanders have a good shot of getting to the final four teams again, like they did last year. I've said it more than once on this show. When I said it when Ethan was on the podcast. I've said it since. The Islanders are a Brock Nelson breakaway away from forcing a Game 7 against the team that won the Stanley Cup last year. The Islanders know what it takes to win in the playoffs. They play playoff-style hockey in the regular season, and it's why I think they're well-suited for another deep playoff run. As the fifth-best team, yeah, I think the Islanders are very close. If I had to pick a sixth, I would put Carolina in there. Good defensive pairs, Hamilton and Slavin, Brady Shea in a reduced role, pretty good. A little upset they traded my boy Jake Beam, but they still got Brett Pesci. Carolina's just got so much talent, man. And they're still young, relatively speaking, where I feel like if they're healthy, they catch fire at the right time. They don't know their own strength. They punch a little bit above their weight class. It wouldn't be impossible for me to see them beating Tampa. It'd be unlikely, but definitely not impossible. We've seen stranger things happen in the playoffs. I mean, Carolina won a Stanley Cup 7, 16 years ago with Cam Ward playing out of his goddamn mind. It's for anything is possible come the playoffs because the sample is so small. I think that is my most important message I can give to the public on the show in terms of hockey. Anything can happen in the NHL playoffs because it's best of seven. And an 82-game series averages even out over the course of an entire season. In seven games, weird shit happens. I hope you guys enjoyed today's trade deadline recap episode. Not sure what we're going to do for tomorrow's show. Probably something baseball. I got to reach out, talk to a few people, see what availability is like. I'm trying to line up some guests for next week. I hope I get who I'm looking for, because if I do, we're going to have really good episodes. I will see you guys tomorrow. Have a good one.